0: Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Normally, I'm joined by Marty Irby and Wayne Paselli, but today I had the fortune of uh, uh, just being with Wayne Paselli. He is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Uh, Marty is the executive director, and he's off probably on a yacht somewhere. If I know Marty, he's, he's slathered up in suntan lotion, he's got a fruity drink in his hand, and he's enjoying life. But we wish him well wherever Marty is. Uh, he's also our chief lobbyist in D.C., and you can read more about these uh, good folks and their work at our website, animalwellnessaction.org. Um, you know, one of the most horrific things I have to admit uh, that I've ever done uh, was to set out at a at an older home I once lived in a glue trap for mice, and uh, laid it out the night before. Got up in the morning, the trap was successful, and on that. Trap was uh, was a mouse and it was still alive. and watching that animal squirm it was was horrible. And that gets us a little bit into the topic of today, and that is trapping. Now of course there are many different kinds of traps and we'll talk about those, but even that small experience gave me a firsthand indelible taste. Of what it is like for animals when they are confined to the point where they are held against their will, where their very bodies and their motion is limited. And of course, with some of the traps that we'll talk about, the pain and suffering in the immediate sense is much worse. Uh, and then with that, I'll introduce our guests. Uh, Brenna Galdenzi is the president of Protect Our Wildlife uh, Vermont. Uh, you can go to her website, Protect Our Wildlife VT. Uh, dot org. Uh, She has been involved for a number of years now, helping Vermont residents understand the problem of trapping and campaigning to educate and bring sensitivity to the many animals in that great state of Vermont that suffer absolutely cruel deaths. So, so Brenda, on that on that happy note, uh, I'll say welcome welcome to the podcast and thank you for your work. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, appreciate it. And, And Wayne, you and I. Uh, had a nice conversation before this uh, started, uh, and you reminded me what a pioneering state we have in our western-most continental neighbor, and that is California, uh, which recently banned the trapping uh, of all animals for sport or for profit, and there is some argument, not not well made, that there is some profit in this activity. Uh, but, but Wayne, California has led the way on this. Uh, give us a sense before we turn it over to Brenna, where the United States are when it comes to trapping, and what do our listeners need to know about the topic?
1: Well, Joe, thanks for taking on this topic, and I'm delighted that we've got Brenna on the, on the line today to share her insights and, and details about the campaign that she's conducting against steel gel-like hole traps and other body-gripping traps. It's an issue that I've been involved with from my youngest days when I was a college student, In the 1980s uh, and started an animal protection organization at my university. I continued that work pretty consistently and in fact led a bunch of ballot initiatives on this topic. And the purpose, Joe, was to stop the use of the most inhumane and commonly used traps by recreational and commercial trappers Typically licensed, they're authorized by state fish and wildlife agencies, who literally set out traps for weeks or months on end. Typically steel-jawed leg hole traps, but also uh, wire snares, uh, also conibear traps, which are a particular type of trap that's called a quick killing trap, and t- often used in water to kill muskrats or, or beavers, and the big picture of life is in the eighties when the fur industry was still going pretty strong, there were really millions of, of animals killed for, for their pelts. And you had States like Minnesota, Wisconsin, a lot of the Northern tier States were very big uh, on the trapping front. And, you know, the trappers were licensed like hunters or fishermen were licensed, but it's a very different enterprise where, you know, especially compared to hunting, where you aim a weapon at an animal and you intentionally uh, kill that animal, you know whether it's with a rifle or a shotgun or um, you know some other firearm or it's a bow and arrow. You're aiming at an animal, not to say that it's always precise or that the killing is done swiftly um, or so cleanly as it's called. Trapping is a different enterprise. You're essentially hiding a trap out there and you set the, the, uh, the jaws open. If it's a leg hole trap, there's a pressure sensitive pan and you open the trap. So the jaws are wide open. So it's, it's aligned with the ground and this pan is sticking up a little bit. You obscure it with leaves or you put some dirt on it and you, you know, often place it in a, in an area where animals travel it might be by the water or it might be on a natural path that animals take uh, through the woods. And if the animal is heavy enough, uh, they will trigger the pressure-sensitive pan. The jaws will slam shut. Now, they're called leg-hold traps because it's supposed to catch the leg. So the jaws slam shut on the leg. But it could be if they, you know, awkwardly enter the trap, it could get them by the midsection or it could get them by the neck. It could get them by... You know any part of the body. We've heard often this this uh, notion that that animals will will try to, to to make very very vigorous efforts to get out of the trap. Sometimes they will chew at their leg. Other times, more more commonly, they just keep twisting around and they can twist off their leg. And sometimes a a trapper you know will find just that body part remaining in a trap, and then the animal's almost certainly doomed at that point. So it's a pyrrhic victory for the animal if he or she was able to escape. So, Joe, I just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of a perspective on, you know, what's going on here. Why are, why are we doing this as a nation? Obviously, the fur trade is a big part of, of global history. It's certainly a big part of North American history. I mean, fur trappers were... Uh, folks who were literally on the frontier, and they were they were pioneers in exploring much of the country and uh, beginning uh, to to map the country and to you know give us a sense of the breadth of this big continent that we live on. And the fur trade was a big part of the economic activity of an earlier time in the United States. It's hardly a big thing now but it persists as a tradition, and the people who do it are people who want to do this for fun. Just like some people hunt for sport, people trap for sport, but there is a commercial element because if they're killing bobcats or they're killing beavers or they're killing muskrats or they're killing raccoons or fishers or otters, uh, those pelt prices are sometimes valued in the global market and the pelt prices might be high one year or low another year. And some of that pelt pricing drives the intensity of trapping activity. So you'll see less in the way of trapping intensity when the pelt prices are lower and more when it's higher. So you mentioned California, and I, I will turn it back to you in a moment, but California did a ballot measure in 1998 that I helped to lead to ban the use of body gripping traps for recreation, and commerce, and fur. We thought that was going to really do the do the trick. Turned out to to stop, you know, probably about 90% of the trapping. But there was a small there was a small core of trappers in the dozens who persisted, and who used cage traps to kill bobcats, to capture and then kill bobcats and a number of other commercially valuable species. In 2019, California banned any trapping of wild animals for recreational commerce and fur. So a state that was really at the center of the North American fur trade at one point now has banned it entirely. And I remember when we did the anti-trapping ballot measure in 1998, this is 22 years ago, uh, there were maybe about 12,000 fur-bearing animals killed uh, annually in California after the ballot measure went down to fewer than 2,000. But now that that number has has dropped down essentially to zero in terms of private citizens going out to kill animals for recreation and and also commerce and fur. But that's the only state in the nation that has that kind of restrictive policy.
0: Um, And and we talk about sport, we talk about profit. Um, Does the California measure have an exemption for... Uh, defense of your your property or your own cattle. How does trapping figure into expect or uses rather uh, that don't have anything to do with sport or commerce?
1: Yes, some of that is permitted. There are certain traps, like like uh, steel gel legnel traps, that are basically forbidden uh, for any purpose. There are other traps, like snares or conibear traps, that can be used strictly for damage control purposes that might be authorized by the California Department of Fish and and Game or it could be USDA's Wildlife Services program that conducts some of those activities. When you, you know, mentioned at the start of our program, Joe, the idea of, you know, trapping of mice with glue traps, that's an entirely different enterprise. That's a that's not an animal who's commercially valued um, in any way it's a it's viewed you know by homeowners as a as a defensive action there I mean I think it's unconscionable to use glue traps i mean they're horrific yeah horrific and cruel uh, but uh, that would be an entirely different sort of thing so trapping can go on under limited circumstances for damage control purposes, but it's uh not with certain traps and typically has to be authorized
0: yeah Brenna, when I think of Vermont, you know, pancakes, you got Bob Newhart up there, uh, you got Bernie Sanders. I don't really think of um, Vermont being a trapping kind of state, but apparently it is. Talk about Vermont, what trapping means to the state, its culture, its heritage, uh, and what's being done there uh, to help the animals that might otherwise meet this kind of this death.
2: Yeah, it was about a decade ago. I didn't really know much about trapping, leg hole trapping, body gripping, kill trapping. And I was volunteering for another um, animal protection organization. And they had a manual uh, with all their different campaigns that they focus on. And I came across, and I'm telling you this because this is what kind of sent me on my path. I came across this photo of a beautiful bobcat, um, a dead bobcat uh, in the snow. With some blood spattering on, on the snow, the animal's paw was in you know a metal trap, crushed. And behind the animal, um, there was a man smiling. And I looked at one of my fellow volunteers and I said, you know, what is this? I hope that you know the person called the game warden. This has got to be illegal. This is awful. This is animal cruelty. And my fellow volunteer looked at me and said, you know, you've got a lot to learn, Brenna, because everything in that photo is not only completely legal, but it's fiercely promoted um, by the State Fish and Wildlife Agency. So that set me on a path to learn everything I could uh, in order to be an effective advocate for bobcats and foxes and coyotes and other fur bearer species who are trapped uh, to really understand. I just couldn't understand why. What would ever cause somebody to want to inflict that kind of uh, pain and suffering on an animal? I think that's one of the, the big differences um, between, you know, even hunting and trapping, as Wayne touched on, you know, when you're hunting, you know, there's somebody, you know, at the other end, you know, pulling the trigger, making an informed decision and hopefully taking a clean shot. With trapping, you know, there's nobody at the other end of the trigger, it's, um, and it's, it's rooted in just abject cruelty.
1: Right. So yeah, yeah, Joe, I, I just want to jump in. You know, I've likened steel jaw traps um, and other body gripping traps to landmines for wildlife. I mean, they're just planted there, and you don't even see them. And an animal then steps on the trap, you know, just like a, a person or an animal would step on a landmine, and then life changes forever at that point. And the, they are cruel and indiscriminate. I mean, the thing is, if you're trying to hunt for a bobcat, I mean, with a, if you're trying to trap for a bobcat, and, you know, you're setting out the trap, any animal uh, that, that has enough weight, you know, a lot of the traps are, 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 uh, uh, are factored by the, by the weight, that the, the pan um, has, a, has a certain pressure that triggers it. But any animal large enough to trigger that trap for a bobcat can be caught. So, you know, there has been some discussion that for every target animal, depending upon the species that, that the trapper is targeting, there might be two non-target animals caught for every one who's a target. Some people might say it's five or ten non-target animals. It really depends on, on uh, what the trapper, what, what type of species the trapper is aiming for. And right? because
2: these traps are often baited with, with meat, you know, for coyotes and bobcats, you know, you have protected species like bald eagles who hunt based on their sight. And they will fly down and um, they'll inspect, you know, the bait site at the leghole trap. And these animals, uh, these raptors are trapped every year in traps set for coyotes and, and uh, bobcats and foxes and other animals. So, um, yeah, they are landmines. And you've got hungry animals out there, you know, during the winter months. They're, they, they're attracted to this bait. And uh, any unlucky animal that steps on that will end up trapped. So that's that's one of the biggest problems. Is that they're just non-selective, despite what trappers and state fish and wildlife agencies will have you believe. And if I may, I, I really think that social media will ultimately be the death of trapping. I really do, um, because for a very long time, trapping has been able to flourish out of public sight, um, and you have these very powerful state fish and wildlife agencies with their pro trapping propaganda machines. You know, the general public has been largely left to think that trapping is conservation, trapping is warranted. Um, Now, you know, Protect Our Wildlife has been able to use videos and photos that have been shared by trappers on their own social media, um, depicting just horrific cruelty with, you know, animals who are still alive in the trap, you know, um, fearing for their lives, you know, clearly suffering. And the trappers photographing or, or videoing uh, the animal, that is great ammunition to use uh, to one day put an end to this practice, because no one could claim that it's fake news, that it's you know propaganda, you know generated by groups like mine. You know we are using content that is being shared by trappers themselves against them.
0: Is there any kind of even within existing rules and regulations a requirement that trappers? Uh, fetch all of the traps, uh, because it seems to me that uh, dogs, you know, domestic dogs on walks in the woods with their owners, or even children could come upon some of these traps that are, are abandoned.
2: In Vermont, they're supposed to be checked uh, every 24 hours or, or once a day. That is a very difficult regulation to enforce. Uh, I think most trapping in Vermont probably takes place on private land, on farms, you know, that are hundreds of acres, Um, so it's, it's a great regulation to have. I have to believe that it's, it's virtually impossible to enforce. We had a situation just last year where there was a trapper, uh, who was, uh, trapping beavers and he failed to check his traps daily. And this was uncovered by a person who was out hiking and happened to see, uh, that trapper had caught a blue heron, a great blue heron and a red-tailed hawk and those traps set for beavers, and both animals obviously died. And even when the warden found that the trapper hadn't been checking his traps daily, um, the trapper wasn't even ticketed. So not only are these regulations difficult to enforce, I don't know if it's the same in other states, but I find that too often, they're not taken seriously, and trappers aren't aren't ticketed and fined.
1: Well, you're right, Brenna, that this is Wayne again, that that a 24 hour standard is, is one of the, one of the best, but it's still ridiculous. I mean, imagine getting your hand, you know, stuck in a car door. I mean, after one minute you'd be, you know, you'd be, you'd be struggling and screaming. Imagine that last 10 minutes or a half an hour or two hours or five hours or 12 hours. I mean, to have an animal caught, uh, with a, with a body crushing trap Uh, for 24 hours is unconscionable to me. And some states have 72-hour trap check requirements. So the animal is going to be there for three days. Uh, So there are many metrics to look at in assessing the inhumanity of trapping. And the devices themselves and the damage they do, then the regulations related to trap check requirements, the non-selectivity of the traps, their indiscriminate nature. All of these things are really important for people to look at when they assess uh, whether this is really a legitimate industry and practice in the 21st century.
0: Uh, I know in Kentucky, there are parts of our state where cockfighting, for example, and we had a podcast about cockfighting in some of the U.S. territories, where the argument is this is such a huge part of our culture that uh, we ought to turn a blind eye to it. How much a part of Vermont culture is trapping is this kind of a father-son family outing thing um,
2: I think that uh, you have a lot of trappers in Vermont who probably learned to trap from their fathers and grandfathers and so understandably when you are going after something that is a tradition and that um, is sentimental to them because it's something that you know their father did their grandfather did you can understand why um, you know there's such fierce opposition to what we do because we're being viewed as attacking their heritage and their tradition but um i think at a point in time you know when we can do things better and we understand you know animal suffering that we have to do better and that using the uh excuse of tradition or heritage is just also a very slippery slope to go down because you know we've done things that are based in tradition that are terrible to people and I, I just I don't think that's a good justification for it. And again, I do think that the more people that see again these photos, you know, Wayne alluded to it. You know, it's not hyperbole. I mean, I've seen photos that we've obtained through our Fish and Wildlife Department through public records act requests, with animals who have self-amputated. They'll actually chew through their paws um, when they're trapped out of complete panic and fear and pain. It's just it's unthinkable. And if that was someone's dog or someone's cat. Um, you know, that the suffering is no less when it's a fox or a bobcat or a coyote. Um, also, in our public records request that we submitted last year, um, Wayne was talking about, you know, quote-unquote, quick kill conibear or body crushing traps. You know, those traps don't always uh, quick kill. There was a, um, photos of a coyote who had been trapped in a um, conibear kill trap that was set for fisher and the coyote ended up getting his head caught in the bear trap. And the coyote was found one mile from where that trap had been set, and the coyote was, was, was dead. So that coyote had been wandering um, for a very long time with the kill trap attached to its head and was found um, alongside someone's house, and he had, he had died. So those traps don't always, and I would say probably more often than not, operate as intended.
1: Yeah, Joe. I want to I want to amplify some of Brenda's comments in response to your question about this being a tradition. Let's put it in perspective. I haven't checked the latest uh, hunting license numbers in Vermont, but uh, you know, Vermont's not a big state. Five or six hundred thousand people. I imagine Brenda can correct me um, if if those numbers have have uh, swollen a little bit, but. Used to be as many as a hundred thousand hunters. Probably now that number has gone down. Maybe it's sixty or seventy thousand. I'm just guessing based on what's going on nationwide with hunting. If you're talking about seven hundred trappers and seventy thousand hunters, you're talking about you know just a fraction of that number. Uh, so the number of participants is relatively small. We're talking way way less than one percent of the of the population, and. The, the other distinction, I think, with hunting, just while we're talking about that, which I think is a very important ethical question, as well as the selectivity and the intentionality of hunting, where you're actually looking at the prey you're trying to kill and then delivering a shot that's supposed to kill the animal quickly. Many hunters, the vast majority of hunters, are hunting for meat. They're killing the animal and then consuming the product. With trapping, nobody is really consuming the meat of any of these animals. The animals are are killed for their pelts, they're skinning them, and they're leaving the carcass behind. I think when we look at justifiable uses of animals, you know, there's a continuum. You mentioned cockfighting, other forms of animal fighting. We don't as a society accept the idea of staging fights between animals just for our human amusement and entertainment. On the other side of the equation, you know, if we're a meat-eating society and someone's hunting deer, well, a lot of people think, well, that is fundamentally the same sort of, of food-gathering exercise. But to kill animals just for their pelts and then to sell the pelt into the fur trade, which is also, a, you know, in the broadest sense, a, a discredited industry that is also on the decline with so many dozens of major fashion companies from versace to armani um to you know so many companies even macy's recently pledged to end its use of fur it's just not justifiable anymore and traditions exist uh, but we adapt our societal values over time and we make an ongoing judgment that's why we have legislative bodies that have an ongoing purpose that convene annually They look at important questions in our society. They organize our society, but they also are there to reflect our values. And when you look at the cruelty, the indiscriminate nature of the traps, the fact that they're not doing it for meat, the fact they're selling it for fur, which is uh, no longer a necessary garment, that's where that tradition comes under scrutiny and where Brenna and other campaigners are rightly calling for an end to the use of these traps.
2: And we... um did a survey uh, through the University of Vermont Center, Center for Rural Studies back in 2017, where uh, we polled or Vermonters were polled and asked uh, if they oppose trapping. And 75% of Vermonters polled uh, want to end trapping. So I think that is very telling. Now I don't know what that number would have been 20 years ago before social media and before uh, the world has, I think has really um, seen what trapping looks like, but that's very telling and very, it makes me, it, it it's hopeful.
0: Mm-hmm. In fact, um, over the last 20 years or so, the number of licenses granted in Vermont has gone down dramatically. Uh, We were talking about some numbers before we started recording it, something like 43% fewer uh, licenses have been granted or applied for uh, over the last few years. Um, Do you perceive that to be the case and what's behind that that trend?
2: I think it's probably a trend nationwide. Uh, Hunting sales, uh, hunting license sales are also on the decline in Vermont. I mean trappers now, you know, they're 0.0015 Zero point zero zero one five of Vermont's population and despite the fact that we still have a state fish and wildlife agency that is still trying desperately to recruit new trappers um and they're they're really just feeding this this dying industry versus putting energies into other ways that people can recreate with wildlife we have something now called camera trapping where people set up you know game uh, cameras and and uh trap animals on their camera and view them that way. People are looking to other ways to experience and to interact with wildlife that don't involve, you know, such archaic methods like trapping. And we were Did you say that they're
0: recruiting? I'm sorry, Brenna, but, but you said something very interesting, and that is your perception is that uh, trappers are being recruited by your, your Fish and Wildlife Agency?
2: Absolutely. What does yeah, that look have,
0: like, and why are they doing it?
2: I think they might be doing it, and this is just a guess. Um, you know, at the pressure of national sportsmen's groups, uh, I think they realize that certain traditions are on the decline, and they're trying very hard to to remain relevant. Um, one thing that was really interesting is our Fish and Wildlife Department. There's an annual fur bear newsletter that's directed at trappers, but it's for you know the public to read as well. And a couple of years ago, they were actually coaching trappers on how to post photos on social media and warning trappers that the photos and the content that they were sharing uh, was being used against them, which I found very interesting um, that they, you know, feel a need to kind of manage what trappers are doing in order to project, you know, the right image. And, you know, on their own, on Fish and Wildlife's own Facebook pages, you know, during deer hunting, we see lots of photos of deer and during fishing seasons, lots of photos of fish and ice fishing. You know, it's telling that during trapping season, it's completely silent on Fish and Wildlife's Facebook page. You know, they realize that trapping really, you know, remains alive if it's kept in the dark. And we've asked Fish and Wildlife each year at the start of trapping season, can you please notify people that traps are set on public lands and those traps will catch dogs if they're unleashed. And it's always been uh, a challenge to get them to communicate on trapping. So it's one of those.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the argument that the sale of licenses like this Inures to the greater good of the wildlife community, that somehow or another this money is put back in for conservation purposes. Um, I know some fish and wildlife um, uh, offices are saying that owing to the decline of hunting licenses, for example, to talk about a parallel uh, you know, activity, uh, the decline of the sale of those licenses is making it harder for them to protect wildlife writ large.
2: Arguably, I would say that trapping is a losing business for our state Fish and Wildlife Department. I mean, trappers pay $23 a year uh, for an unlimited amount of kills. No bag limits, a very long trapping season, $23. So doing the math, you know, $23 times 740 trappers is not a lot of money into our Fish and Wildlife Department. And when you think about what goes into overseeing and administering uh, the trapping program in Vermont, I wouldn't be surprised if other taxpayers might be subsidizing the trapping program, which is a very big problem. Um, uh,
1: Brenna, I I agree with you entirely. And there was an analysis done in California after the 1998 trapping ban for the lake hole traps that just overseeing the trappers who remained cost more than all of the trapping licenses um, uh, value to the, to the state. And Joe, again, this is a this is a small piece of of what is a diminishing revenue stream for state fish and wildlife agencies. I mean that the amount of trapping is negligible compared to the amount of activity for hunting and fishing, and there'd be very few states. I mean, maybe two or three that would have more than a thousand trappers. Uh, most states, it's probably just two or three hundred individuals. And they create a lot of havoc for wildlife, a tremendous amount of cruelty, um, killing endangered species, uh, protected migratory birds like raptors. And I, I think that no, no person who knows anything about wildlife management can say with a straight face any longer, that trapping plays a vital financial role in the operations of a state fish and, fish and wildlife agency.
2: We've talked about trapping a bit, and there's so much more we could still say, but we haven't uh, touched upon the fact that in most states, there are no standards for the methods of killing a trapped animal. So you know we all have these horrific images of you know seals being clubbed and how terrible that is, and it obviously is, but it's happening right now in most states. So in Vermont, there's no standards for killing. So uh, some trappers will employ methods like bludgeoning, you know, bludgeoning choking an animal. Um, there was an undercover investigation performed by another wildlife group um, that showed that trappers will stomp on a trapped animal's chest to crush the heart and lungs. Uh, these are all standards of killing um, that are completely legal. And sometimes these other options uh, for killing other than shooting are done because they want to preserve the pelt. So not only does that animal suffer terribly during the time that animal's trapped, but that animal is too often not even given a quick and humane death with a 22 to the head. Um, I've seen the most despicable ways of killing these trapped animals. You know, so I think that's fascinating.
0: How- I, I Frankly, I did not consider that aspect of it. it. It seems like they can get away with activities that notwithstanding uh, the, the element of trapping would be pegged as
1: torture.
2: Yeah, I mean, wildlife, you know, they're not covered under the cruelty to animal statute. I think uh, animals, and probably Wayne could uh, tell me if this is accurate, you know, animals that are under the management of state fish and wildlife agencies are exempt from cruelty to animals protections in each state. So surely if, if these methods were employed, you know, on a dog or a cat, that person would certainly be in violation. Um, but because it's a wild animal, you know, there's, there's virtually no protections.
1: Yes, some of the states do have explicit exemptions for traditional wildlife management activities. Many state anti-cruelty statutes do not exempt those, but the tradition is to ignore them, as Brenna says, and to have this completely differential standard for the treatment of domesticated animals and wild animals. There have been some prosecutions of people who've done terrible things to wild animals, and that should be the case. It's cruelty to animals statutes. It doesn't say just cruelty to pets. Of course it's horrible to be cruel to pets, but it's equally cruel to to do the same thing to another mammal. Uh, you know what's the difference between a domesticated dog and a coyote or a fox or a wolf? Uh, you know what's the difference between doing something terrible to a domesticated tabby uh, and to a bobcat, which is really the most coveted? Of the fur bearing animals in terms of uh, trapping programs. Thousands and thousands of them are killed every year uh, in the United States. And Joe, I I do want to draw another distinction as we're talking about the state fish and wildlife agencies. You know, a lot of hunters and state fish and wildlife agencies talk about what they call the North American model of wildlife Mm. management. And that was a response to the market killing of bison and passenger pigeons and so many other species in the 19th century when people just slaughtered animals for commerce. They killed buffalo for their hides and for their tongues. They killed passenger pigeons for the, for the meat to supply the emerging cities with immigrant populations. And we liquidated species. We lost certain species entirely. Others were brought to the brink of extinction And in the early part of the 20th century, the new model was developed where states set limits on the killing. Uh, They required licensure. Uh, they, They tried to make an assessment of overall population numbers and to then see that the kill did not exceed sustainable limits. They also imposed what was a critical standard, which is the personal utilization of the animal, but not the sale. Of the of parts of the body, so if you were killing deer or elk or bears uh, with a firearm or with archery equipment, you could you know consume the meat, you could you know mount a trophy, but you weren't to sell that. The trapping industry is a remnant of the 19th century model and totally at odds with the 20th century and now 21st century. Model of North American wildlife management where you're killing the animal for commerce and the pressure on the species is driven by the value of the commercial exchange, in this case, the sale of the pelt. So this is a vestigial practice uh, and it is really uh, not aligned with our current system of wildlife management in the United States.
2: And Wayne, I think it would be great if we could have maybe a future podcast on uh, the North American model and how a lot of these state. Statements wildlife agencies, you know, because they support trapping are really at odds with the North American model that they supposedly uh, prescribe to. I mean, as you said, the North American model says, you know, there's no commerce in dead animals. That's, that's not accepted. Also, the North American model says that wildlife may only be killed for a, legitimate, for a legitimate purpose. Well, what purpose is there killing an otter when the pelts are worthless? No one eats otter meat. Um, so I think these state fish and wildlife agencies are again um, going to have a very difficult time, you know, telling the public how, at one side of their mouth, they claim to support the North American model, um, while simultaneously uh, endorsing activities that are clearly at odds with the model.
0: Right. And two other things uh, I think to note: one is that not only when these animals are trapped and killed, we often leave uh, at the mercy of nature and other predators the younglings of these trapped and killed animals Uh, and at the same time uh, even on your website there are examples relative to the nuisance nuisance justification of trapping many workarounds that are humane you know protections uh, against one's holdings against beavers that don't involve trapping uh, beavers um care to comment on either of, of those components uh brenna
2: Well, getting back to, you know, animals that are incidentally trapped, and I would really um, urge any wildlife advocate in different states to, again, submit public records requests to your state fish and wildlife agencies. All this information um, should be available to you. You know, we have found, you know, um, black bears, deer, Canada goose, um, red-tailed hawks, screech owl, barred owl, so many different types of animals you know have who have been caught in these traps and have died and what's worse is that trappers are not even required to report when they trap these protected species uh we only know about uh, probably a handful of these incidental takes because they got reported to law enforcement for one reason or another so there's so much information um that's out there that i think a lot of people are unfamiliar with, and it's knowledge is power, and it really helps um, with campaigns to build awareness. Um, as far as you know, animals who are causing uh, damage to property in Vermont, you know, landowners can use even traps that are illegal, They can use snares. It's completely unregulated, and what's unfortunate is that there are a lot of options out there that are not only humane, but that they're sustainable solutions to wildlife conflicts. And that's something else that we focus on uh, heavily each year, trying to get people to, instead of killing, you know, getting to the root cause of the problem and fixing that. And our website does offer a lot of different options and because animals are orphaned. If you're killing, you know, a fox uh, in the spring or in the summer, you're most likely going to leave, you know, kits behind. And those are unintended consequences.
0: Final thoughts, Wayne?
1: Well, no, Joe, th- thank you again for, for uh, hitting this topic on the podcast. Thanks for Brenna and her, her great insights and really appreciate her activism. You know, I think that this issue is bound up with the fur trade. Uh, we kill wild animals for market purposes uh, with inhumane traps, steel jaw traps, snares, conibear traps, to to weave together ultimately a garment that is no longer necessary. We have... Uh, plant-based, uh, natural plant-based uh, products. We have synthetic products that can keep us warm. You know, when explorers go to the North Pole or the South Pole, they don't go in a bobcat coat or a coyote coat. Uh, they go in, in uh, the, the latest innovations in uh, keeping people warm, that are light and durable. Uh, the world has changed. You know, the fur trade was a big thing, you know, in the 18th century and even the 19th century, but it's no longer a big thing today. Uh, killing animals on fur factories is similarly unnecessary and inhumane. Uh, we just need to end this era of killing animals for fur and this random slaughter of, of uh, dozens of fur-bearing species for their pelts done by a small percentage of people in the state who uh, just are, are obviously not factoring the suffering that these animals endure is is something that needs to end and uh, it will only happen if dedicated people uh, apply the levers of government because government is sanctioning this and it's organizing uh, these activities and this is the way that that we're going to stop it and of course you know as we see more and more uh, major fashion companies um, you know say that they're no longer going to sell fur that's going to increase pressure uh, on the trappers and diminish their ranks because there won't be really any value for these pelts.
0: Brenna Galdenzi, president and co-founder of Protect Our Wildlife Vermont. You can find her and her information protectourwildlifevt.org, Facebook, YouTube. You can search uh, for Protect Wildlife VT on Instagram and Twitter uh, to learn not only about what's happening in Vermont, but germane to all of us who care about animals, uh, what happens with trapping and its various issues across uh, the country. And Wayne, thank you again so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.